You're listening to the Scotiabank Market Points Podcast. I'm your host, Greg White. Market Points is part of the Knowledge Capital series, a collection of audio, video, and written commentary from Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets leaders designed to provide you with timely insights and analysis. If the COVID-19 pandemic is an economic war, fiscal and monetary policy form critical components in the battle plan. A country's success certainly depends on the size of their war chest, but more importantly, it's their willingness to use it, their speed of deployment, and their ability to coordinate efforts across various levels of government that will ultimately determine the effectiveness of any policy. But as countries concentrate their efforts on mitigating domestic damage, cracks begin to form in international relationships. The EU in particular, as three of its largest economies, Italy, Spain, and France, are among the hardest-hit regions across the globe. On this episode of Market Points, Juan Manuel Herrera, FX strategist at Scotiabank, shares his thoughts on government and central bank policy effectiveness and winning the fight for our lives and our livelihoods. Hi, Juan Manuel. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you. My pleasure. So you have compiled uh, an incredible amount of research regarding central bank and government policy actions uh, in the major economies in reaction to COVID-19. Um, in terms of strong standouts for you, what, what, uh, what policies or countries uh, have taken strong, firm action here? You know, I think that uh, if I were to pick one uh, you know, big outperformer in terms of the uh, response to the outbreak uh, across the major advanced economies, that would be Canada. Uh, you know, I made biased, but I think the fiscal and monetary actions of the federal government and the Bank of Canada, as well as institutions such as OSRI, the financial regulator, uh, those all have so far been uh, highly comprehensive and coordinated. Uh, you know, with these announcements coming on either the same day or shortly one after the other. Uh, of course, there are still some gaps to be filled, but, uh, you know, these are unprecedented science and all countries are playing it by ear, uh, some better than others. And so, uh, just to give you a quick summary of the key points of Canada's response. Uh, so Bank of Canada, you know, it's got interest rates by 150 basis points to its effective lower bound of 0.25%. So that's matching the, the cuts by the U.S. Federal Reserve. And so that in turn, that in turn uh, reduces costs of carrying debt for households and businesses. Uh, the BOC has also launched a series of asset purchase programs, which is kind of the first uh, foray into this, uh, which, uh, out of which the most important is the $5 billion in weekly purchases of Government of Canada Securities, which is quite an unprecedented step for the bank. And the aim here is to you know, pump money into the financial system and uh, maintain liquidity. And you know, turning to the federal government, I think the crux is the, Can- the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, which will foot the bill for 75% of employees' wages for uh, companies that have been affected by the COVID-19 outbreak. So what this does is that it prevents you know, this massive increase in unemployment that would uh, result from firms just not being able to keep employees since they just you know they can't afford their wages. Fortunately, there you know there's still firms that just won't be able to cover their remaining the remaining 25%. So the subsidy is not perfect, and this will especially hurt smaller companies, uh, which simply you know, they don't have the financial cushion to keep their workforce steady uh, through the pandemic. Um, I think it also may have come a bit too late. You know, there's reports that 3 million Canadians have filed for unemployment benefits just in the last three weeks or so. Uh, but on the other hand, you have also some companies that may now choose to rehire employees now that the federal government has, has uh, announced this program. Uh, for example, this morning, 
Air Canada announced that they would hire back over 16,000 laid off workers thanks to the wage subsidy. And there are other measures that the government has taken, such as uh, increased employment insurance payments, and I think and just all this taking altogether direct spending totals over 5% of GDP. And this is without including any additional lending and tax deferrals, which you know maybe you uh, increase the bill to 10% of GDP. And I think we're still more likely to see uh, more support for certain sectors, such as the energy or travel industry, and um, you know if these uh, containment measures. Uh, go much longer. I think the, the, the federal government will also have to extend the period that this uh, wage subsidy will be in place. So that will definitely increase the, the bill. I'm curious, is, do, you, do you feel that there's a threshold here though? Um, uh, I think there's a lot of positive signs in terms of uh, us slowing this down, specifically in Canada. Uh, but let's say, hypothetically, it were to keep going as it is, um, how deep are our pockets, really? How long could we support something like this? Luckily, Canada's fiscal position is you know, quite good compared to its peers. So I don't think right now uh, the government should be all that concerned with how much additional spending uh, you know, they're rolling out, uh, whether it's uh, in terms of benefits or subsidies. Uh, so uh, in this case, I think it's, it's such an unprecedented uh, you know, event that and one of the only ways to deal with it is to, you know, really hit it hard and kind of not worry about the fiscal bill because the 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 less the federal government steps in, the longer lasting the economic damage uh, could be. The the action of the policies themselves is one thing, and then of course there's the swiftness of implementation. Has Canada performed well in that arena as well? I think it has. I think compared to uh, other countries, especially such as the U.S., uh, you know, Canada's. Uh, if the way the system works actually makes it pretty quick for people to apply for their, uh, or say for businesses to apply for this wage benefit and then this uh, subsidy to come into their bank accounts or uh, same for unemployment benefits. It seems like the Canadian federal government has implemented a system that makes it you know, very efficient to apply, very quick for you to get uh, the money and, and the bank via direct deposit. And this will actually help in both you know, keeping uh, people employed, but also for those who are unemployed, you know, to, to get the, the quick, you know, uh, quick money into their accounts so that they can you know, pay rent or buy food or all these essentials. What about uh, in terms of through your research, uh, have you seen the U.S. be strong or would you consider their policy action or swiftness to take action as not strong enough? And considering uh, America's place on the global stage, how does that impact everyone else, us included? Right, so I think uh, maybe if I were to look at uh, the various uh, measures that have been rolled out by the governments around the world or central banks around the world, the U.S. Uh, the U.S.'s response, especially on the fiscal side, has been a bit lacking. Uh, but that's especially in terms of you know how long it took the administration and Congress to react, but also in terms of the designs of the policies. Uh, I mean, there's also problems in Italy and Spain. In terms of their response, but you know, a lot of that is through uh, no fault of their own, so that's a different matter. Turning back to the U.S., we've all heard about the massive sticker price of this uh, two trillion dollar package that uh, Congress passed a couple of weeks ago. That's about ten percent of GDP, but I think beneath the surface, there are some issues that suggest it won't be as effective as you know what other countries are rolling out. My main issue with the package is that it doesn't include wage subsidies, so. 
while in countries like Canada and the UK, the government is stepping into the red layoffs, uh, you know, by going straight to the source, which is by paying a share of wages. Businesses in the U.S. don't uh, have, for the moment, you know, an important incentive to hold on to workers. So what the package includes is a $1,200 check to each adult and $500 per child, and also increase in unemployment payments, uh, among other measures. And that's definitely helpful for people to, you know, to be able to make rent payments or buy food and other essentials. But there is a much more long, long-lasting damage to the economy of having a high number of unemployed persons. Uh, you know, consumer confidence is low. So for those who are unemployed, even if they're getting checked from the government, which in some cases might not even be sufficient to cover all expenses, uh, they will still hold back on spending since they have no clear idea of when they will again have a job. And when looking at certain industries, it becomes difficult to see many small businesses uh, surviving this, these uh, social distancing measures. So I mean, they just don't have the cash at hand to, to last you know, past the month of closures and uh, loans with the government. They've been too slow to roll out, so these are businesses that are closing and you know, they might not reopen. Um, so it may just be the case that you know, some of these will be permanently closed after the economy is reopened, and wage subsidies may have just helped to keep them open throughout, uh, instead of just you know the the loans that the government has for small businesses, or uh, you know if there's unemployment benefits uh, that are being rolled out to people, and the checks that are coming in the mail maybe as as an employer. You know, we feel less of a burden about uh, you know letting people go. Um, so then, what we get here is that um, unemployed worker, unemployed workers will come back to a uh, smaller demand for labor, and for those firms that go back to hiring, it won't be such a quick process to rehire. There are tangible and intangible costs in finding employees, and this will take some time aside from the time it will take for for some businesses to reopen. So what this does is it drags on the recovery, and so you end up in this vicious circle where firms aren't hiring because people aren't spending and so on and so forth. So all of that's kind of surprising considering the talk of how big the stimulus packages are coming out of the United States. And of course, the Fed came out of the gates with huge programs. But I noticed in your research that even in early April, the Fed started to back away from some of their, some of their programs. Is that a little too early? Can you walk us through uh, what they've been doing lately? They've uh, really thrown the kitchen sink of the outbreak. Uh, you know, the Fed's cut its policy rate to zero lower bound and to uh, emergency like intermediate steps. Uh, it's launched limitless purchases of U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, uh, which by the end of this week will probably total about one trillion dollars since they began the program. And this is complemented by you know an alphabet soup of other different measures that uh, seek to maintain uh, you know liquidity in the financial system. Uh, but I, and back to the pace of uh, treasury purchases, they've, um, the Fed just keep, can't keep going at the pace at which it started, which was about 75, which was 75 billion dollars uh, of treasuries per day. Uh, I mean, it would very quickly dry up the supply. Uh, to put that in context, if it maintained the 75 billion dollars per day pace for a full month, it would be close to a trillion dollars, or about five percent of GDP each month. And when you look back at its third round of quantitative easing in 2013, uh, then it was only buying about $45 billion a month at its peak. Right? So each day it was already buying more than it was buying uh, during QE3 uh, each month. So obviously the speed of purchases uh, really is unprecedented, and it just shows how aggressive uh, the Fed has acted this time around. 
Um, but also, you know, aside from the fact that you just can't keep purchasing uh, U.S. treasuries at this pace, it is already seeing some positive results from its purchases with um, financial stress easing and some of its operations being actually undersubscribed, uh, which means that there is just not that much need to have such large operations, although they'll probably keep them going from the for the time being. Of course, if at any moment they see that, you know what, market locations are back, uh, they have the capability to, again, ramp up purchases. And I think, I think the Fed may now be thinking about providing more support inside of corporate bonds or even, even venture in with purchases of municipal bonds, which are having some trouble given the damage to uh, uh, their finances from the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, what about the Fed's support for central banks uh, internationally? How, how are they coordinating their efforts um, and supporting U.S. dollar liquidity internationally? Right. So... Aside from the domestic actions of the Fed, uh, it's also being cautious about what's going on in international markets, and uh, it has acted to counteract this recent strength in the U.S. dollar, which uh, in part was a result of some hoarding of U.S. dollar. I mean, there was a very thin liquidity in the system. So what it's done is that it has introduced uh, more frequent and longer maturity current swaps with some major uh, central banks around the globe, such as the ECB and the Bank of Japan, but also recently it opened up this uh, these swap lines to other central banks like the Bank of Mexico and Brazil. Uh, this all this to to improve USD liquidity to you know, to keep the the, the the dollar from strengthening much much more. Uh, so thanks to this, we see currencies like the euro, which uh, you know it lost close to seven percent in the space of about ten days in mid March. Uh, and the Japanese yen. So both these currencies have picked up uh, quite some ground since the Fed announced the new swap lines. And you know now they're trading more in line with risk sentiment in markets rather than this, you know, this dearth of supply of uh, U.S. dollars. So how would you grade the Fed right now if you're a school teacher grading the Fed? Uh, what letter grade would you give the Fed? Lot <laughs> <laughs> lots of homeschooling yeah, happening right now. If I were to grade the Fed, I'd say. Um, if, I were, if I were to grade the Fed, I think it's done a pretty good job. I give an A, A minus. Uh, you know, maybe it's been slow uh, to get going on certain programs. Uh, maybe it should have recognized earlier that uh, the the pace of purchases should have to be faster than uh, what they had originally announced, which was only I mean, only uh, seven hundred bill seven hundred and fifty billion in uh, treasuries and mortgage backed securities. So I think as this is, you know, it's an ever-changing landscape, and I believe the Fed has reacted. It's maybe a bit slow to it, but it has reacted well. Uh, now, what about if we take ourselves across the uh, across the Atlantic? What about the eurozone, and how are they helping some of its most hardest-hit economies? Uh, I think, uh, in a nutshell, they probably have not. I mean, as a whole, they've probably not done uh, enough. Uh, I mean, this kind of goes back to when I said that uh, through no fault or their own, the response of certain countries has been a bit lacking. Um, so first, you know, let's talk about the ECB, which, I mean, given that it cuts policy for the euro bloc as a whole, it's not as targeted as it could be if each country has uh, an independent central bank that you know can set its own policy rates and choose to purchase that or whatever other instrument at the pace appropriate for the country. So first... The ECB was, so I, I was talking about how the Fed was slow to get going. So the ECB was pretty slow to get going. The, they increased the size of their monthly purchases by 10 billion euro per month. And they lowered capital uh, buffer requirements early March. 
which freed up some cash from banks. But I think it quickly became obvious that you know this really wasn't going to be enough, especially when you compared it uh, with the Fed's actions, for example. And you know the Fed cut interest rates while while the ECB that's already at negative interest rates, they can't go much lower, so they just left them unchanged. And aside from that, they also have some pretty um, some pretty serious uh, communication missteps where. For example, the ECB president, uh, Lagarde, she essentially implied that it was not the bank's job to uh, control runaway interest rates for some of the periphery countries. Uh, then another policymaker said the ECB was at limit in terms of policy. So there, you know, the bank's commitment uh, to confront the economic damage seemed pretty weak. But I think, so a few days after that, however, they had a bit of an about face and they announced this pandemic emergency purchase program. Which, just, which totaled 750 billion euro, which was with essentially uh, no limits on the timing or uh, which country's bonds they could purchase. So this means the ECB cannot you know, target periphery bonds. So think Italy, Spain, Greece, and help keep rates in those countries relatively low, which is where they will be most needed if uh, these countries intend to borrow. Um, and there is a cap of 750 billion euros to this program, but I think the ECB will not shy away from increasing its purchase target if necessary. But, and this is a big but, uh, monetary policy only goes a certain way. So in this crisis, uh, monetary policy can help markets, uh, can, can, can help keep markets functioning and uh, lower rates for firms, households, and governments. Uh, but what will really get the economy going or uh, keep it supported throughout all of this is fiscal stimulus. Um, so part of the equation has been solved, which is lower rates, thanks to the, e- thanks, thanks to the ECB. So now, you know, countries won't be forced to issue debt that at uh, prohibitive rates. The second part, because of how the EU is structured, is being allowed to spend, especially after the outbreak. And this is where the Eurozone uh, has run into issues. So due to EU rules, uh, governments are forced to keep an under 3% of GDP budget deficit and maintain public debt under 60% of GDP unless they face uh, economic sanctions if they don't meet some financial restraint uh, objectives. Now, in Italy uh, and Spain and other periphery countries, uh, the wound of the austerity, of the austerity measures that uh, were imposed on them after the financial crisis is still quite fresh. So while they would you know, like to spend uh, to get the economy going, uh, they're afraid of going through that whole ordeal once again, uh, which without a doubt would lead to a much slower recovery in those countries from the crisis than it did in countries such as Germany. Uh, and so I think there's no doubt that to come out strong uh, on the other side of this, uh, fiscal stimulus will be key, and more so in those countries that are taking the hardest hit of the outbreak. So we're seeing this tension build uh, around borrowing between uh, Eurozone members. So Italy and Spain, uh, with the support of France, uh, they're calling for the creation of a so-called uh, Corona Fund with the EU, which would be created by the joint issuance of debt uh, by the EU countries, uh, where essentially the money would come, would come with more attractive terms for borrowers, um, where funds you know, would be centered on those who need it most to guarantee a more even bounce back uh, in Europe-wide growth. Uh, and what this does is that it takes the pressure off countries in the periphery by not having those debt obligations in their balance sheets. But this, you know, on the other hand, it doesn't sit very well with the more fiscally conservative members of the bloc, such as Germany, the Netherlands, and Austria. So in the end, um, if countries such as Italy feel, again, like they're being hindered by, by others in the euro bloc, we could again see uh, rising calls for a split from the currency bloc, uh, which of course, you know, this would lead to a sharp weakening of the euro and a very uncertain outlook for the European economy. 
That was Juan Manuel Herrera, FX strategist at Scotiabank. You can find more thought-leading content from Scotiabank on our website at gbm.scotiabank.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter at ScotiabankGBM, as well as our LinkedIn showcase page under Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets. Please refer to our legal disclosures on our website. Thanks for listening.